Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats, and welcome back to Lions of Liberty. Well, first, welcome back to the pre-roll, because I want to make sure you know about the mini-documentary we just released this past weekend called And Live Free, the Lions of Liberty story. This was shot at Porkfest, which we were able to go to thanks to our amazing supporters on Patreon. The Lions of Liberty Pride is what we call our patrons. And also thanks to our good friend Dan Smots of Goulash Films, as well as his own podcast, The System Is Down. He's a great fan of the show and we were able to bring him along to shoot this incredible documentary. It is really well done and we want to make sure everybody sees it so we set up a very simple URL that is lionsofliberty.com slash live free. So go ahead, check that out. Give it a shot. I'm not selling you anything here. I'm just asking you to check out this mini documentary and perhaps share it with your friends and family or social medias. It is really the story of how the Lions of Liberty came together and it was all made possible by our amazing supporters on Patreon. If you want to see more high quality video productions from us, the best way to do that is to support the show. Head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty and join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Today is a former military intelligence sergeant and has written an ebook called A Direct Republic The Null Hypothesis of Politics How to Automate a Legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome for the first time Mr. Donnie Gebert. Donnie, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. All right, Donnie. And before we get into your very intriguing ideas that you presented in this book, I want to first get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, um, get into your time in the military a little bit, and really I want to get to how and why you started to put your brain power into thinking about politics and how we can do things in a, a different and more peaceful way. I started off right out of high school. My first job in the military was ammunition logistics, so I just learned kind of how stuff works on a modern battlefield because a lot of it is just supply and uh, kind of boring, kind of a boring job. Um, end of the, it was the end of the Clinton year. So there was a drawdown. So it was not just kind of a, it was not really a fast paced job, but it was also a slower paced military. So I got out, I went home, I got trained by, uh, a, it's a national guard unit, but it's filled with all old active duty guys. Some were special forces. My uncle's a president's hundred sniper. So I always had, a lot of good um, role models and I mean, not just role models, but technical apprenticeships. Like I have really good professionals just go ask a question to, I'm not asking some Bobo, I'm asking real pros. So I get bored with the national guard life. I went back, I went into the Navy and I was communications. So I was an electronics tech. So you do a lot of communications, radio, radar, um, all the stuff that plugs into the battle space is pretty big. And I didn't like the Navy that much, so I went back to the Army, and I was intelligent. So every time I kind of switched around and I got to learn new stuff, and uh, intelligence is a really good way to kind of culminate after you have a, a broad experience. You can apply a lot of different stuff that you've learned into just looking at normal reports. You kind of understand at least portions of them because you've done these other things in life. So I, after uh, Iraq, I kind of started looking at the, the overall space. And I, basically, I started looking for a job. Milton Friedman said, find a, find a market need, find a job. So after the 2016 election, I said, I'm almost certain 
that this is fundamentally broken. It should never get to this level of hysteria. So I just started looking into it. And lo and behold, once you get back to the law, like I had already studied a lot of stuff, but once you get back, to, all of the sources ran back to the law. So that's kind of where I was like, okay, I'm standing on the wrong battlefield. I'm here in boots when I should be standing with an open book in my hand. And I shouldn't be looking at crossing borders. I should be looking at why are goods and services not crossing this point right here. So then I, you know, once you get into that, that's where, how I ended up here. So you shifted um, from the physical battlefield to uh, the intellectual battlefield, you might say. Right. Well, understanding the big map was the S2 job, the intelligence job. And I kind of didn't understand it. So you have to keep getting the 50,000 foot view, the 100,000 foot view, the there's no oxygen up your view. So I'm kind of curious what your political background was, you know, b- before these recent times here where you, where you had these ideas. Like, what was your, your politics growing up at home? Were you, I mean, obviously you, you came from a military background. I don't know if that made you more Republican or when you sort of started to have, uh, you know, ideas that were a little outside of the mainstream. My family was the only Republicans in our tribe from the 80s through my life. But now there's no Democrats left to show you what that migration was like. Um, Joining the military, standard constitutionalist, not, you know, I mean, at 18, you don't have a lot of life experience. I had a fairly good education. I had a, a couple of years that weren't public school, which helped a lot. So through the military, standard, somewhat hawkish Republican. But, you know, like, I'm supposed to be the hawkish one. I'm standing there in a uniform. I, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I wasn't giving too many people shit about the sphere. When I gave people political arguments, it was more like, sorry, I do this for a living. And you're just going to have to accept that the world is an ugly place sometimes. Right. And that's kind of, so the more, the more I got involved in the military, the more pragmatic I got with politics. And the pragmatism is where everybody dies. It's where you really become, it's where you become Madeline Albright and suddenly half a million children is worth it. I don't know how you get to that point. Like I never got to that point. Right. We, we did the equation. We worked out the math and yeah, we can kill half a half a million for this cause. It's fine. Yeah. It'll, yeah. It'll just totally work out. So I, I kind of got out of the mentality of like, I got really to the place where you could kill everyone. It doesn't work. You can kill large swaths of people. It still doesn't work. If you really know what you're doing and you want to go full bore genocide, it might work a little, but it's really not worth it. It's probably just cheaper to buy the stuff from them than it is to try and gather up a military and wipe that whole slate of earth clean. It's probably easier to just buy it. So especially for what we spent on the war, we could have purchased pretty much every square inch of Iraq. That's uh, sadly probably probably true. Yeah. So I, I, at a certain point, it's pragmatism, but it's really it sounds like really complicated pragmatism. And the complicated part is forgetting eighth grade civics. Everything beyond that's kind of like eighth grade civics and not that complicated. All right. So let, let's start right there. Why don't you kind of lay out um, what your issue is with the way that generally Americans, at least, are taught about civics, about government, about how that should all work, um, you know, at, at sort of the eighth grade level? What, what's the problem with what, how it's laid out from the beginning? Well, the story is written at an eighth grade level. So if that story was actually true, our government is at about an eighth grade level. Fortunately, it's not true. However, it's not true. (laughs) So 
the good news is, is that there's adulting and there's adult systems. The bad news is, is that it's not run by adults and nobody necessarily knows how it's supposed to be run because we were all taught wrong. And then technology came along that made guys like Jeff Bezos functionally better at the job than the government was. So at this point, we're really not talking so much about government and law. We're talking about organization and how the rule of law affects the way we organize. So up until 2008, I will give every single human being a pass as long as there wasn't a mass you know, grave on the other side. And like to a certain extent, nobody, nobody had data sets that would do anything. And even if you did a transoceanic payment, would of billions of dollars would so let's just say you're looking at a transoceanic fraud one nation state to another so the deal probably would have never gone through if there wasn't some real property let's just let's have a hypothetical war between us and australia we had some big money deal they demanded some kind of collateral be on the australian continent should default right so now all of a sudden, the way this is going to work out, we're going to go get our gold that we leveraged in Australia. We're going to go get it with an army. Okay. This is like the worst case scenario. And if you think about it, it's kind of what Norman Schwarzkopf did because British Petroleum owned most of the oil wells in Kuwait and the American military went to secure the loss of the oil fields, not necessarily the equipment. I'm sure there was losses and stuff like that. But Lloyd's of London was not going to take a complete loss because an entire country fell. So in 2008, uh, blockchains came around and you could not have a blockchain until you had a high speed Internet. So it's not Internet. We had to have good connectivity. We had to have robust infrastructure to solve a certain problem like a transoceanic payment of large proportion. And now it can be done on a blockchain by giving coins back and forth across. And everybody knows no matter where you're standing on what side of the ocean. This system is objective. We're all running nodes. This is how it works. We're not going to be defrauded. So you don't have the outright fraud. And then you don't have the currency fraud risk of the Federal Reserve printing more money to devalue whatever investment you had with them. Because if they're going to print more dollars, the dollars you get back in settlement are not worth the dollars that you lent out. Right. So basically, Throughout time, there's always people who are stealing from other people, and there's always people who are trying to organize so the place isn't a shit show and we're not dying of cholera. And there's always those two, pe- two groups of people. The, the parasites are not fundamentally against the organization. They wouldn't be able to parasitize properly without it. Right. <laughs> so they, uh, they very much appear to be helpful, but then they always have these nice fraud facets that look like, you know, Bernie Sanders has four houses. It's up to four now. Mm-hmm. So how does a socialist, how does a real socialist get four houses? Writing books about socialism. <laughs> the, 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 the punchline is the awkward silence there at the end. He's obviously a terrible socialist because he has four houses. Mm-hmm. So he knows the game. He knows that, that a lot of what's coming out of his mouth is obviously nonsense. Recently, he went on Joe Rogan complaining about how he didn't get enough time in front of the, uh, you know, at the debates, he was on Joe Rogan an hour and seven minutes. Like almost nobody's on Joe Rogan less than two hours. Yeah. He probably could have had three hours if he was willing to, willing to give it. It, it, He could have had three hours if he had a personality, but he doesn't. 
He's, he stands in front of a microphone, he bullshits everyone, and then he goes home and he tries to figure out how he's going to make his next meal. Like, and he's pretty good at that. It's just he bullshits everyone in the public sphere like he knows what he's doing. He, he really is the consummate politician uh, in that sense. I mean, the fact that right. his, his job is to talk about how things should be while living in a completely different way. Right. Right. So, you know, what do you need Bernie for? And as of 2008, the answer is organization, even if he's kind of bad at it, like whatever. But now, dot, 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 these systems have changed in the last 10 years and and the fraud is becoming apparent. I've read a little bit of your book. I have downloaded it and uh, I've listened to a few of your interviews. So I, I have an idea of this concept, but what I'm going to try to do now is I'm going to try to sort of wipe my brain clean men in black style and just act like I, I don't, I've never heard of this before and I have no comprehension of it. Uh, so, because I think okay. a lot of people at home will, will be coming in, in, in that way. So let's just start from the, the very base of your idea here. And it is all based around the blockchain and, you know, we could do multiple hours just on the, the blockchain, but for the, right. just the sort of layman, um, what is the blockchain specifically? And, and then from there we can build kind of how you can see uh, the, the current systems of government being transformed by this blockchain technology. Okay. So it's an open public ledger. The easiest way to think of it is think of the D system in your County. Okay. This is an open document where all of the landowners openly have their doc- like, you can find out who your neighbor is if you don't know by going and looking at this ledger because it's publicly, all this is, is available information. So we're not trying to hide it, but all of this information is centralized at the courthouse. Well, because it's centralized at the courthouse, they can eminent domain your house and then they can redeed your house under the claim of taxes. So these are two fraud services that you should not have to deal with, but you do because of the way that system works. So let's say we put deeds on the blockchain. We put an ArcGIS layer in there. ArcGIS is a, uh, it's a program. It just gives you a, a map. And we can put all the deeds on that ArcGIS layer. And then we give each deed its own blockchain, uh, a little QR code. And now you're basically securitizing that property on a blockchain. This works really well because you can't move the land. I don't recommend securitizing gold. Maybe some, like if you're going to put stuff in a vault, I understand, eh, maybe. I don't think it's a good idea, but land is a really good idea because it doesn't move. So now instead of having the courthouse has a document, everybody in the county has a copy of the land register. Every deed owner in that county has a copy of the land register. And the only way that those deeds ever trade hands is just like a Bitcoin, just, just the way Bitcoin is, where the, the rules of trading those documents doesn't have a centralization point to pillage. So I have to trade my key to you. You have to trade your key to me. There is no central courthouse where someone could show up with a court order and say, this deed right here, this number, this plot shall be redeeded and retitled to this guy here. Now, there's that's a, that's a, a little more complex layer of law, but that's the fundamental idea of why the centralized systems have these fraud problems and and what they need what needs to come out and how to secure without you know how to rebuild the system without having all those problems again yeah, and, and you mentioned fraud a lot, like uh, when you talk about our current systems, how they're all um, essentially are either set up as a fraud or are easily used as a fraud. So can you describe a little bit more how, just how how the blockchain it prevents fraud? Is it is it completely fraud proof? Are there flaws with the blockchain that you know I, I haven't thought of here? I mean, what is the, the core element of the blockchain that prevents fraud? It's cryptography. So the same thing, the same systems that 
the federal government uses to encrypt its to, to encrypt communications to make sure nobody can break in. Same cryptography is what's uh, guarding your wallet. So you'll get a public key and a private key, and everybody can see the public key. And on certain ledgers, you could check the balance, and on others, you can't. But you're the only one who has a private key. So it's kind of like the keys to your car. It's really more like a digital fingerprint. The whole goal is to make sure only you can spend whatever this, whatever, whatever that blockchain is, whether it's the deed moving or whether it's money in a wallet, the only way you can move that is if you have the private key. So the cryptography is what prevents other people from being able to move that money because the chances of them figuring out your private key is so slim that we don't talk about it. We're just real glad to have cryptography. And that is essentially the only way fraud could occur if someone actually somehow captured the private key of another, essentially? Um, so there's different, there's different ways to attack any particular thing. A blockchain has hardware, but that hardware is distributed all over the globe. So it's very difficult to attack the hardware of a blockchain. You could probably attack one node. You could probably attack a group of nodes. But as far as getting a whole blockchain, it's difficult. I'm not saying things are impossible, but you have to be, you know, advanced computer degree kind of guy before you can start attacking is that level. Then there's like a code-based attack. And a lot of the beautiful thing about blockchains is they're all open source. So when one guy's got a code and they get attacked in a certain way, and they fix it, all the other really smart people look and say, oh, we could fix our code before somebody gets us. So they all get to, you know, cheat off each other's paper and the, uh, the attacks are getting fewer and fewer and fewer because they're all sharing this knowledge. So the code-based attacks, it, you could have a shitty system. There's a big difference between having a shitty system put together well and having a, a good system put together poorly and where that software goes awry and that's kind of the last part is like a financial attack, which is trying to extract some other kind of value. They don't steal the value out of your coin. They don't steal your coins, but they steal the value out of your coins. That's how the Federal Reserve gets your money out of your bank account. They, they get the value. So you can value attack Bitcoin if you have a lot of USD, but you don't, you don't lose your Bitcoins. Your Bitcoin goes from $10,000 to $6,000 if you had a value attack, that kind of thing. So really, you worry about software. It's not that big of a deal. Um, you worry more about value with currency, but it's still a young market. It's not too much of a real problem. Once it's stable, it's not a problem. So it's really, really a good system. And it's only about as hard to learn as, you know, like Super Mario Brothers and credit cards. <laughs> well, I love Super Mario Brothers, so, so maybe there's hope for me. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you go and take this blockchain technology that's been around for about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years or so? And, uh, you know, we mostly think of it in terms of cryptocurrencies and just direct exchange exchange between individuals. So how do you then take that technology, that same you know overall concept, and then apply it to government and in, in order to eventually, I guess, hopefully change the way we do government now, take out the fraud and replace it with, and under your idea, a sort of a blockchain-based system? The manner in which a blockchain is constructed is from the bottom up. So it's think of it like this. It's attack of a swarm of bees. The bees do not um, centralize for any particular reason unless they do. And when they do, the manner in which they do it usually looks like pheromones or pollen. Well, the same way uh, information travels like pheromones and pollen. So when you can expose fraud, you can get all the bees to attack those points intentionally by just exposing the fraud for what it is. 
the goal here is we're going to build a system from the bottom up. No one's in charge, but the rules will basically allow the bees to expose all the fraud on the way up. So we're, we're not going to get defrauded by the Constitution because there's some constitutional problem. Like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson didn't know who Marx was because Marx wasn't born yet. But Article 1, Section 8 is fundamentally, it's Marxism. It, that's how Marxism operates. So when you take Article 1, Section 8 out, okay, we got rid of the Marxism. We also don't have anything paid for in the rest of the document. So you fundamentally have to figure out how to pay for all of these grand constitutional ideas without the Marxism that causes the real problems. So when you do it from the bottom up, the money doesn't come together in one bucket. Instead of saying we're going to put our money together and then vote where the money goes, you put your money where you want it. I put my money where I want it. That centralization only happens when you and I agree to it. And it causes less problems, better ergonomic system. You said something there that I think not, not everybody listening may necessarily understand what you're talking about. Can you detail what you mentioned there when you uh, mentioned Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution? Why is, what ex- exactly is that for people that might not know offhand? But why, why is that Marxism? Uh, it's taxation. The fundamental problem with taxation is like, I know everybody likes to scream taxation is that great. Why is this a problem? If I have the legal authority to just reallocate property, I may not do it correctly. Just because the law says I can doesn't mean I'm going to do it well. So you have to have a competent individual spending these funds. And if you're going to have them directed, if you're going to have a centrally planned economic premise, it has to be executed very, very competently because when it comes to an economy, the second and third order effects usually blow up your original intent. It's not, we did at, we did X and then Y. Oh God, why, why? We don't know why. That's usually what happens in economics and they don't figure out that the second and third order effects are what killed them. And that's like, if you have any video, uh, video games or board games that are primarily an economic kind of premise, Start watching what happens with your second and third order effects. It's not your primary efforts in those economy games that screw up. It's the little nickels and dimes on the sides that kill you every time. Can can we can we work a monopoly in, analogy in here? Uh, yeah, it's you'll you'll have you'll spend all your money to buy hotels, and then you'll go hit some little property, and you won't have any money. So now you take down the hotels, and for some reason. You never recover after this one thing. You finally got that hotel, and now you're just going to get nickeled and dimed around the board, taking off the hotels, wasting your time for another two hours, and when you lose, all because dice. Not because you're bad with money, not because you don't know how to invest, but because rando dice put you in free parking in jail just at the wrong time in the right time. <laughs> just like your life. <laughs> Hey friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests 
not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C. insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in D.C. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. I've looked into many different sort of ideas that people have about how we can do government without what you're talking about in Article 1, Section 8, without this forceful, coercive taxation, without the power to redistribute. And um, yours is the first one that I've heard that specifically centers around the blockchain. But I think what you run into when you talk to people about the nature of government is often you realize, like, I think the difficult thing for libertarians uh, particularly to really uh, accept is that many people they want government. They want these things, even though we have a moral problem with how it's done. They want these things done, and they don't want to really think about it too hard. They want the fire, to put the firemen to show up when there's a fire. They want the police to show up, I guess, and and write down whatever they do. I don't I don't know why, but uh, there, there's a lot of the government services that people assume government needs to do because it's the best way to do them. So how can the how can we take people that already want these things done and then sort of transfer these ideas? into it being done via the blockchain, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. So the first part is everybody's going to do this whether they like it or not. That's one. Because the government has only really functionally provided a lot of these things through currency debasement. And they are run- that game is running out on live television right now. That's not me. That's everybody who's been in the market for 30 years has some real questions about currency right now that they never asked before. Professional financial guys are asking questions about currency that they haven't asked in 30 years. So all of this is going to change. The CIA's job was to watch Russia, and they were surprised when the wall came down. Okay, When you only have one job and you don't know what a a country coming apart looks like, it comes apart right in front of you. And then they're like, oh, we don't know. So this is kind of what's happening here. The currency has kept afloat a lot of ignorant programs. That should have been allowed to sunset a long time ago. So through its own ineptitude, you're now kind of seeing at the end of the line here, everybody's trying to figure out, okay, we have a dollar problem and then we have a derivatives problem and how are they going to shake out? And hopefully they find an interesting way to cancel them out. But I have, I have a strange feeling they're, they're going to multiply. <laughs> so because the government has to change their funding method, all of this is going to change anyway, one way or the other. And that's just kind of on a three to five year. So what do you do in the meantime? You educate yourself on how to create a legislature from the bottom up. Build a bear style, basically. And it's not that hard. And once I get some, like I put cryptocurrency addresses in the book, I get crypto in there, I'll go hire coders and I will put software out open source and everybody will be able to get at it. And it will be able to um, restructuring towns, restructuring um, counties, maybe states, Maybe nation states. It it really depends. So you just you sort of think this is inevitable, regardless of of what you personally think about it. It, it sounds like it sounds like you think that because of the way the technology is going, especially with with how new it is relatively, it's only maybe 10, 12 years old, and how rapidly it's been accepted in, on a certain level. That this is the way it's going, regardless. It's a, well, it's it's a disruptive technology. So it's it's replacing systems that people relied on for a long time. And, and anybody who thinks I'm wrong, you have to ask yourself a question. What, on, for Facebook, what is the Libra? What is Libra cryptocurrency from Facebook? And the answer is it's a big fat plug for the dollar. 
Okay, if the dollar has an abandonment issue, there has to be some way for people to exit it. And in Germany, the mark, the mark only really took two years to fully just it was 25 X in two years. And it was like 50,000 X in four. Like if you didn't get and that was in a non information age, you only had two years to get out of the mark or you were cleaned out. So in, in an information age, I don't think that's I mean, the real smart money will be out in two hours. The smart-ish money will be out in two days. The slow money will be out in two months. Just, just so everyone's clear at home, when you say that, you know, when you're talking about this, you're talking about like a hyperinflation scenario, essentially, with the dollar or with fiat currencies overall? Well, you see, I don't see a hyperinflation unless the Fed starts printing. Mm-hmm. But the real thing is everybody on the planet in fiat is looking for yield. Everybody. And almost the whole planet is in NERP, negative interest, or ZERP, zero interest. So there's very, if you look up Gresham's law, it, you know, the good money will, the money will go where it's best preserved. Good money pushes out bad money. Nobody wants negative interest. Nobody wants zero interest. They're going to go for some kind of yield, which functionally pushes everybody towards the dollar, which is fine. But now even the, the European Central Bank, the IMF, all of these different people are coming out and saying, yeah, uh, what was it? Mark Carney comes out and says, yeah, Libra is kind of, kind of the future because central banks don't really know how to adjust their inflation and interest rates to the point now where they're under the impression that the world's just going to go negative and no one's going to care. And that's kind of a central banker delusion where they say, don't worry, through complicated derivatives, you could still get a yield. Some people aren't going to risk their money for complicated derivatives. So we're there. We're just at that place. That's all. Can you also describe just real quick something else you mentioned? I want to make sure everyone is getting everything here. But can you describe what a negative interest rate is? I know this is something that's starting to happen in some European countries. Uh, it's it's almost too mind-blowing to believe it's real. but <laughs> Right. So imagine you're going to buy a bond and – Think of it just like a regular bond that you would have bought. You know, I bought government bonds like 30 years, 20 years ago. You know, okay. You're, I buy a hundred dollar government bond. What is the, normally you would, you would hold that coupon for as long as you have it. 30 years. Okay. What am I going to get back at the end? I'm going to get back $104 at the end of 30 years. So I'm going to get a very, very small return over the course of 30 years because 4% over 30 years is garbage, but that's supposed to be what I get. Now the, now the, the shorter period of time, you'll get less interest, but you might get more money because it's a shorter period of time. Well, once that interest rate goes to zero, you're not getting any interest. You're giving, I'm giving the government $100, 30 years later, they're giving me $100 back. Never mind inflation, never mind the purchasing power that was lost through it, never mind all of the ways I could have made money with that $100 in that 30 years, none of that. The government is convinced that you're going to buy an interest at zero because it's safe. So it sounds like a good deal like for a borrower to be paid to borrow money, potentially. But why, why do governments want to do this? Why do governments want to pay you to just use their money for something? What's, the, what's their motivation? Oh, we're not, we're not the full stupid yet. Then in Denmark, <laughs> they will give you a, a mortgage at a negative interest rate. In other words, if you use their shitty currency and buy a house in Denmark, they will help you pay down your principal to buy a house in that shitty currency. 
They just want some money velocity to get through that thing. And they want some kind of debt denominated in that currency so that they could say, look, these people will be paying in our currency for X amount of years because they're at it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So as these currencies fail and when governments run out of options, I guess, at some point, they just want the money being used. I mean, as long as it's being used, they can at least say, look, someone's using our currency, even if that means you have to, you have to pay people to use it, I guess. <laughs> Think about the way the, Swiss, the way the federal government used the Swiss system to bully the whole planet was you have to buy U.S. dollars to buy oil. So if nobody had any dollars to spare... Somebody would have to pony up real property or something to get the United States, uh, to get the Federal Reserve to print up more money so that they could then have oil in their country. Even if they were trading their local currency at an exchange rate, you're getting a lot of, in the, think about it like this, in the 70s, the federal government would look at some shithole country and say, yeah, we'll give you a billion dollars and we'll take a billion dollars worth of your currency. And you know what they do with that currency? They put it at LaGuardia and LAX and all of the, the exchange terminals. A billion dollars is nothing to the government. We'll happily give you a little money you can buy oil in, and you're just going to lubricate our currency exchange booths. Like, that's just one feature of that currency. What else do we need it for? If that's all it was, the government wouldn't even give a shit about that country. But as soon as you got oil and other stuff there... Then there's stuff to trade, there's stuff to leverage. Goes right back to what you've been talking about this whole time, which is another layer of fraud, another level of fraud that's enabled by the systems that we have, by the fiat system overall. You can never do this in a, in a non-fiat system where you couldn't just create this money out of thin air. I like to think of it like this. The, the population is expanding at an exponential rate. Human intelligence is expanding at one IQ point a year. <laughs> so... So the last guy sees the last last legitimate job and he's like, shit, there's no legitimate job. I got to have this job that's 1% bullshit just so I can make a living. The guy next to him, he looks at 1% guy and goes, I got to bump that up to three or I won't make a nickel. By the time you get to the end of that line, Bill Clinton is sucking the blood out of some poor child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an ugly, it's a, you want to talk about a downward spiral that goes real fast. That's what it looks like. It really escalates quickly, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, then you then you end up you very quickly end up with, and then Jeffrey Epstein. You really do you took the, took the words too, out of my mouth. I mean, the, when you when I hear Clinton now, I, I hear Epstein. You know, Jordan Peterson says you're only three degrees of separation from a billion people. So technically, some of us have probably already touched Jeffrey Epstein's dick. Oh, come that's on. pretty. That's <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> hey, it's a social disease, like government. Once you've once you've gone Epstein, you've gone everywhere. Government is a social disease. So keep that in mind at all times. All right. Uh, let's get back to, uh, I, I like thinking of it that way. That it's the new STD. It's a social disease. Yep. <laughs> Socially transmitted disease. Um, so let, let's try to go back and, and, and simplify this idea of, of using the blockchain. And you like to use the term a lot of like being your own senator. So can you describe like mm-hmm. kind of how that how, how that applies to this blockchain technology? Because I, I think it's still difficult for people to maybe wrap their heads around, you know, I get the technology, I get how it works, I get why so many of our systems are fraud, but how do we actually take this re- real in the real world and turn it into providing our government, or at least a lot of the systems and a lot of the services provided by government, how, how can we incorporate the blockchain into this? So right now, if we were to all just replace our representatives and say, okay, our representatives are fraud, I think that's pretty obvious. 
we're all going to go online and we will vote for our, we'll do our own voting in, in the Senate and the House. We'll do our own. The first thing that happens there is we went from a constitutional democracy to a direct democracy just by removing the representative. So I'm like, wait a minute, how the hell does this happen? How is an entire, the whole, the idea, everything you and I have been shoved at as a republic really boils down to a representative and they're nothing but fraud? Like that didn't make any sense to me at all. So by putting this together where you make everyone their own senator, now everybody shows up, but nobody, everybody shows up with the money that they were going to get taxed with. And we don't put it in a bucket. So the first thing we're all going to do is we're going to agree to not murder, rape, and steal. Now you get to, as long as you can agree to that, now you're technically a senator. It's easier to make everybody a senator than it is to try to take senatorial privileges away. So everybody's going to have the same perch. Now, not everybody, you can't make economic equality. Not everybody has the same pocket. And if that doesn't even make sense. 18 year olds aren't supposed to have the same amount of money as a 50 year old. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. So you can't really redistribute wealth, but you can say a 51 year old has a lot more vested interest in several social systems than the 18 year old does. So the 18 year old really shouldn't even be paying taxes anyway. So what do they do? They just sign up and they go away until they have something else going on in their life. You're a senator. Nobody bothers you. You have an ID. If you want to contribute to something on a macro level, you put money in the bucket. You don't worry about it. And that's what normal humans should be doing, getting their own shit straight. Now, if you want to buy property, that level, that level of understanding is about Super Mario Brothers. Okay. Now we're going to upgrade to Zelda and we're going to buy a piece of property. <laughs> Okay. That's it. You, it's going to get a little more complicated as I you mean, buy Zelda's property. a tough game. That took me quite quite a long time to, to finish. So, <laughs> exactly, it's not super complicated, but you have to be diligent at it, and you have to basically understand the rules. And that's about all property law is. It's not difficult. The point is, you don't end up with some kind of property law bullshit in your life unless you bring it into your own life. It won't be there. That those laws don't apply to you because you don't have land. And when you start taking away the assertion that law is supposed to be affirmative upon all in the land, you start getting a better legal system because nobody's supposed to be running around policing all of humanity for certain behavior. So this idea of offensive policing, oh, it works. It'll get a bunch of dogs and people killed, but it doesn't have any kind of intelligent line where the government is supposed to stop policing because it doesn't make it. It's, it's so expensive. That now we're being taxed, and there's there's no police department that's losing their budget because they killed too many people who un, in an unjustified way. That, that's that's never happened, as far as I know. Hey, well, first we would have to legally define what too many is, because that's how lawyers work. So right now we can't get rid of any cops because nobody's killed too many because we don't have a definition of too many. Because one one is not even too many under the current system. And then we got to run it by the union. And we got to make sure that the thin blue line is protected at their job. And the whole point is they're not supposed to be. The laws of physics apply to cops, not the laws of Texas. If they're going to pick a fight, the laws of Texas won't protect them. So you really have to get your protectors more sane and you have to get your laws more sane by breaking them up. So basically you're debundling. You only get laws in your life when you put them there. And this really boils down to a legal service. You're going to buy land. You're going to have a legal service. It's going to be written by 
uh, I, I used to say Alan Dershowitz, but you know, he's all mobbed up. I, I don't, Lord knows. Let's say Andrew Napolitano is going to write your legal system, right? So instead of the laws of Texas, you're recognizing I have property law problems. I have security problems. I have, you know, I need fire. I need EMS. I want to contribute to defense. There's lots of things that are fundamentally attached to your property that shouldn't be attached to some random tax bill that's taken out of an 18 year old salary. Even though they can't drink, they can go fight and they can pay the taxes. It doesn't make any sense. This is just random old systems left over from yesteryear. Slavery was good. Electricity wasn't here yet. Mm -mm. Lots of ridiculous premises that we can clean up just by only being involved the level we're involved. And it costs more to be more involved, but that's an economic thing. And your legal system shouldn't be economically oppressive either. So it, it really kind of gets ergonomic once you understand that I am my own representative. I pay for the stuff I pay for. I don't pay for the stuff I don't. And that's about all you're going to get from society. Everything beyond that has to be, I, I don't like the word technocracy, but if you really want to affect the macro system, you have to go get a professional. Do you want a politician who's going to glean four houses worth of pension off and then he's going to contract out for a professional in the middle? So let's try to take this like step by step. Let, let's assume um, that these blockchain systems of sort of like contracting for property and that, that sort of thing are, are already in place. So, so how does it work if, say, someone moves into a neighborhood, they buy this property, they, they shoot their Bitcoin over to whoever, and now it's theirs, and it's all certified by the blockchain. And now they're just okay. there living in this neighborhood, but there's all these neighbors around them, and they say, you know, we have these other services that we all chip in for. We have fire services. We have uh, this security service that patrols our neighborhood and, you know, keeps us safe, all this stuff. How do we sort of jive, I guess, the the um, the sovereignty that, that you put forward of, of being your own sender with, you know, the concept of maybe, like, moving into neighborhoods where these services are sort of already in place? Like, can can people opt out of chipping in? Um, like, like, how do you see this, I guess, sort of just playing out in, in the real world? To be honest, I, I see a lot of private security, okay? And that's only, in, there's a, a town in Texas that fired their police department and they basically have private security. They're insured, they're armed, they're insured. They go around, they do the same thing as a cop, except all of the offensive things that are basically regulatory stuff. Cops give out tickets and try to prosecute people for regulatory nonsense that generates stuff the state wants. Sometimes it wants money. Sometimes it just wants paperwork to justify its existence. And sometimes it wants to put one of your loved ones in a prison to make license plates on the cheap. So it doesn't have any really good. These systems are fun to like. I understand why people like prisons. Yes, the feral animals have to go somewhere. But then the laws were designed to fill them up and make them profitable. And a prison isn't supposed to be profitable. It's supposed to be a bare minimal event. So the way these things leverage, we were just taught centralized systems as children. And when you start looking about how to, to rip these things apart, it's really not that difficult. But each individual case appears very complicated because a warden running a prison is, is somewhere between a Walmart manager, like a Walmart store manager, and a Navy SEAL, okay? It's like mixing those two jobs together where you have to run a store, but the store has live <laughs> live inventory and that inventory could hurt you. <laughs> so you have this weird scope of existence. What do you do with this place? 
this place is an aberration the way it is. The last thing you could do is fill it up with potheads. <laughs> but because the laws are the way they are, someone says we have to make the places solvent or they'll close and we can't let the murderers run them up. So I just look at all of the systems and, pay, and break them down because I've had to deal with a lot of weird systems in my life and I'm really good with weird systems. And I just kind of smash them all together to where if you want a prison, you're going to pay for it and you're going to get a bill and you might not like it anymore. You might like Donnie's idea where we take the animals and put them on an island. So there's always a solution, but you have to, you have to look at all the complexities, all the nuances, and then say we can have a private, voluntary prison for people who steal money and they go there and they, they show up five days a week and they pay the money back over the course of several years and they're monitored and that, and then they do that. And that's their penance. But this one, this one murders, he gets to go live in nature forever. The end. We don't, we don't take on a societal ethic that says we're going to guard him and feed him and make sure everything is okay, even though he's feral and kills people. Sure, because now, now society is paying the price too. Now we have to also house this person for free, which seems like it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you don't see society in the mirror, but you see the person paying the bill in the mirror. So it's real easy to just throw the bill on the almighty society and all of a sudden nobody's, not, nobody's thinking about how this works anymore. And those systems have really just been, you know, everybody kind of slept too long on their own social duties. And, and it, I mean, it's not nearly as hard as the government makes it. They're, they're lying most of the time. How would you apply this concept? I'm, I'm just going through the usual objections that um, libertarians always get to any sort of, of suggestion of a voluntarily funded government, whatever that may be. Uh, this is certainly one of the more mm -hmm. unique unique versions of that that I've heard. But how, what would what would you say to the objections? Say you know about people that say, how would we raise money for national defense or for you know for just keeping people safe in general and, or protecting the environment i mean are are there any ideas like that that you haven't fully sorted out how that works through, through your idea or have you got this down <laughs> not really this well honestly a lot of the property stuff is is walter block professor walter yeah. block at loyola university it, he is the rubik's cube champion of property law so it doesn't matter what problem you think you got he'll just look at it a couple of minutes and he'll go yeah and he'll, and he'll spin <laughs> it real fast and put it down on the table because property law isn't that difficult, but it does have a lot of different ways that it plays out. So there's two separate issues everybody has to break apart in their minds right off the bat. Otherwise, you definitely will get confused. You got federal issues, and then you got local issues. You want to call them state, you want to call them county, I don't care. Property issues are very heavy toward, the closer you get to your county. You have to deal with those actual properties. You have roads. Um, water, sewer, that kind of infrastructure, the merchants always paid for the roads throughout history. So if you could get your Better Business Bureau and your Chamber of Commerce and your local city government to reorganize where they create a open ledger system for all of this stuff, instead of having a sales tax, you have a, a usage fee, basically. And the merchants collect a, a fee, but they also show you how much the roads cost. So you get open ledger systems to see what your city infrastructure is costing, how much the businesses are charging for it. The same system keeps an eye on the businesses that aren't kicking in so everybody can know, hey, this, this business doesn't pay for the infrastructure. And you know, maybe cities will have an incentivization where they say, come join our Better Business Bureau for the first three years. We know you're a startup. There's no fees the first three years. 
So you have ways of building solid economic communities all through the people who actually do it. Then you go a la federal, which is this big ass system that's supposedly covering hundreds of millions of people. Nobody really understands the whole context because it is true human specialization. A four star, five star, you know, any kind of U.S. general. These people are a mixture between a CEO or a CIO. And then, oh, man, like Howard Hughes, you got to have some weird, this weird animal runs around the planet, looks at problems that no one has ever seen before involving live humans and gunfire, and then conjures a solution with other live humans and gunfire. It's not a standard line of work. It's kind of like building clay, like glass. You know, it's more like glass blowing. Yeah, because you could burn your face off if you do it wrong. Right. So, <laughs> so you, it's a very weird skill set. Well, you don't really, you don't, it, you're so busy it's no wonder why the Pentagon is as big as bloated, why most of the people are lost in it and why functionally things don't get done because, so do you want to support this kind of macro defense network? No, probably not. So bloated with waste, you and I wouldn't want to put any money in the bucket, but if there was something a lot more civil and a lot more sane and a lot more defense oriented, then yeah, we just attach a subscription to our homeowners and say, that goes with my homeowners. I pay a little extra and that's it. Or you can put a one-timer in the bucket, but that's not really how defense is done. But if you really think about it, we're mostly an offensive military and that kind of needs to change anyway for all of the, especially because of the transoceanic settlement. We should, as a society, we should be trying to make smaller and smaller, completely insurable issues instead of Transoceanic fuckery requiring several hundred tanks. Transoceanic fuckery. That's a, that's a term right there. <laughs> well, instead of that, like it, having everything fundamentally an insurable event, we absolutely can do that. The lawyers aren't trying to do this. The lawyers love the system the way they're at. They're hundreds of dollars an hour. Uh, lawyers, lawyers lose your jobs under, under, under your system, it sounds like, a lot of them anyway. Yeah, well, um, listen, you always need people to understand and implement contracts. That's not really a problem. And I, I look at this, the book is legal hygiene and legal self-defense. You keep other people's nasty laws off of you. If you're going to get any more complicated than self-defense, you're going to be in the, the realm of high finance and lawyers and international trade deals. And you're going to probably, I mean, it's, that's, we're, at that point, the problem is very specific and requires professionals, and they already know they're not going to lose their jobs. If you're looking at your legal degree on the wall thinking, am I safe? The answer is no. No, you are not safe. If you're looking at the wall and you're like, good thing I got that legal degree to fall back on, you're fine. You're going to be fine because you're in the right head space of, I know how to do my job and I know how to go through all of these very particular details in business and finance. And I know how to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff and not get screwed in a deal. Those people are fine. Everybody who's looking at a government system that requires the if that if their legal practice goes away, if that government system radically changes, those people should just start trying to become the radical change rather than think it's not coming. That's my two cents to them. Get ahead, get proactive, get ahead of it. Go learn to become your own judge. Go start your go start your own free market arbitration service and figure out what I'm telling you, and then figure out how to leverage your own county right out of bed. 
And there's your job. All right, Donnie. Well, I mean, this is a, a really interesting concept. Like I said, I've heard you speak about it before. It's something I think we could dig into for for hours and hours and hours. Uh, but I really just want to encourage people to go check out your ebook. I think it's like 99 cents or something on Amazon. It's something anybody can can get very easily. And uh, before I let you go, I want you to, to give uh, one last high-level teaser, high-level pitch for the book and the overall idea. Why is this something that we all need to look into? Because as you've kind of alluded to, this, this technology is here. It's inevitably going to change the way that we uh, operate and the way our governmental systems and legal systems uh, function over time. So may as well get ahead of it and, and learn more about it now. The book or the website is the nullhypotheticspolitics.com. There's a bunch of YouTube videos. They're, they're just informational stuff on YouTube. And I have some podcasts there. There's the PDF that's free. It's free on Nook. It's 99 cents on Amazon. So whatever format you prefer, you got all the options and it's, it's not that it's less than a hundred pages, regardless of what format you download it in, it's less than a hundred pages. So it's really, it's a really good shitter read of, I need to learn legal hygiene because the laws of this country are raping me for about half of everything that I make between my income tax, between my land tax, between every sales tax that you're getting hit up. And then all of the fees that you're required to pay for stickers on your car and then the nonsense tickets that are bills of attainder. So there's all ways around this and everybody just needs to understand we are going to, we are transitioning from Flintstone to Jetson and the book is free. So it's not too hard. Just go try a little and life is good. All right. Well, Donnie Gebert, it's been an absolute blast having you on here. Really enjoyed digging into this concept a little bit more. I'm sure we'll uh, have you back on down the road because you're really an expert on a whole bunch of uh, different topics here. So I look forward to speaking to you, to you again in the future and keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Donnie Gebert. And I am always fascinated by people that have new ideas or original takes on how we could come about a free society. And I'm always willing to give people a voice if they have a, an interesting take on that. So I was happy to share Donnie Gebert's thoughts on how the blockchain can lead us to a more free society, can bring us to a, a place of more self-government in the world. I heard him a couple times on a Pete Quinones show, Free Man Beyond the wall. He is, of course, a friend and sponsor of the show. So when I heard Donnie on there with this idea, I said, I just have to check this guy out and get him out here in front of the Lions of Liberty audience. So I really do hope you enjoyed that. Of course, check out Pete's show as well. Free man beyond the wall. He is killing it over there as usual. And of course, continue to check out what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty three days a week. Of course, I bring you the flagship here every single Monday where I do interviews like the one you heard today, as well as roundtable discussions often in the form of libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. Of course, we did a very special uh, look at the Democratic debate last week, the Drunken Democratic Debate Recaps, as we call them. That released to the Pride feed the very same night of the debate, as well as live-streamed to our secret Facebook group for the Lions of Liberty Pride for our supporters on Patreon. So if you want to get that stuff as it happens, that is the best way to do so. And, and we also released that to the regular feed this weekend, because we wanted to share our debate thoughts with the world. But uh, look out for those. We will continue to do debate recaps. They are getting more and more difficult to, to do, to be honest, especially as candidates like Tulsi 
and uh, and Marianne do not qualify for the debates are, are being kept out of it. They were some of the only ones really keeping things interesting. Now it's just really, really the the, the standard status lines from everybody. Uh, so we will continue to soldier on, however, because we, we are here to please you. That is what we do. And someone who always aims to please you, of course, is Brian McWilliams, who brings you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. Uh, he is just killing it, fighting his way through technological problems and uh, to much to our entertainment, of course, as well as John Odermatt, who looks at the broken criminal justice system with the incredibly inspiring Felony Friday. If you missed last week's story, man, you have got to go back and check that out. You never want to miss a Felony Friday, but this one in particular, I don't even want to say anymore. Just go back, click back in your podcast feed, check out Felony Friday. Uh, and that's about it, folks. Of course, you can find all of today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 417, this being the 417th episode of the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. And again, don't forget to check out and live free the Lions of Liberty story, as well as our brand new product, the Taxation is Death mug. Yes, Taxation is Theft, that's a nice phrase, but I don't think it's quite strong enough. So now we have the Taxation is Death mug. You can get that over at our store at lionsofliberty.store. Until next time, friends, and until this Wednesday when Brian McWilliams will bring you Electric Liberty Land, I just have one more thing to ask of you, and that is, of course, to live long and live free.